Welcome to the Wildverse podcast, where we introduce you to the wild world of taxidermy, a place where artists and hunters collide. I'm Heather. And I'm Ashley. And today we have a super fun episode that I am so excited about. We get to interview one of my favorite people to talk to. He always has some crazy story or interesting fact that I've never heard of before. But most of all, he is hands down one of the most knowledgeable taxidermists I've ever met. I am super excited too, because I, before we started just this chat prior to the episode, I had never actually talked to this guy like one-on-one. So I'm super excited to hear what he has to say. And I, like, I've known him, I've seen him in breakthroughs, even before I started competing. Like he's just been, you know, somebody who I've looked up to, like his work has just been everywhere. He does super unique species, you know, different unique projects and all kinds of stuff that, and it's, super unique and super well done. So he's definitely somebody to look up to. So I'm super excited. Yeah, um, he is definitely a master of masters in all things mammals and knows more than most about big cats, which is why we chose the title of this episode, the leopard king himself, Daniel Mang. Daniel, thank you for joining us to talk some big cat taxidermy. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. You know, just another day, another dead animal. But Thank you very much for having me on here. Yeah, no, we are we are very excited to have you. Um, and, uh, you know, I know that anybody who knows you um, kind of already knows how you got your start with taxidermy. You were very young. You kind of started it in a different way. But I feel that's a story for another day. So I'd kind of like to start this episode off with you sharing your start into competing in taxidermy. So like, what was the first show that you have ever gone to? Okay, the first taxidermy show I ever went to was actually a world show. Oh. It was the 2009 World Taxidermy Show in Springfield, Missouri. Pretty sure. Springfield, Illinois. can't remember. I know I'd talked to my parents into letting me buy a plane ticket and fly there by myself. I was only, I'm going to do the math now. I think I was only 15 or 16 years old. Oh, wow. Um, and I yeah you were super young had a a really good friend of mine down in Georgia Michael Vaden I learned a ton from him and I went down on spring break and I actually mounted my first two leopards with him a couple years before that and he was the one that really encouraged me to start competing he told me about the world show I'd never even heard of the world show before he's like it's coming up uh in a couple months you really should go I'm gonna be going and I didn't really have anything to compete with so he led me to one of his many, 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 many freezers and pretty much just opened it up and said, dig through here. Anything you find in here, you can take to the show. Wow. So I went through there and anyway, I found this little baby coat of Monday and fell in love with it. So I skinned it and tanned it at his shop and he helped me kind of showed me how to carve a body. That was the first animal I ever carved from scratch. And then I flew back home to Ohio put all the pieces together, mounted it, made a habitat, built a crate, jumped on a plane and flew to the 2009 world show. Wow. That's a lot for, you know, like a 15 year old to be doing all on his own. And I got there a day early. So I didn't even know, you know, where I'm going. There's nobody there. I bumped into Larry and Kathy Bloomquist and kind of introduced myself and was like, I don't, I heard there's a world show going on here. Like, (laughs) where do I go what do I do so they ended up just sticking me in the supply area and I got to help different vendors set up and it was really really a cool introduction into the world of competition taxidermy 
Ah, wow. So um, just really quick, I you had shared a couple pictures with this and I saw a couple pictures of a really young looking Daniel, like with, I think, a snow leopard and maybe uh, another leopard or like a jaguar. Like what shows were those two from? That would have been the following world show, the 2011 world show. Okay. I So when I took that little baby Cota Mundi to the 2009 world show, I just entered it in novice because, you know, it's my first taxidermy show ever. And I remember Jessica Stevens was the judge and I ended up winning that category. So I got to go up on stage at the world show. Oh, how cool. She told me, she's like, you know, I don't think it's going to be a very long road for you to get to the other side of this competition room over in the masters so she really encouraged me to come back the next year and enter in the professional division mm. next got novice and then professional and then masters in 2011 i showed up with 11 mounts oh my gosh <laughs> yeah four of them were leopards holy four smokes. leopards <laughs> and that was you said all in the professional division yep in professional and how did that go? Actually, terrible. I didn't win anything. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's competing. You don't always win. But you obviously ended up winning the world show. Um, and that was with a leopard. Is that right? Yes, that was with a leopard. And that was quite a few years later. Life got kind of busy and I was doing a whole bunch of other stuff. But that was actually the only the third time that I had competed so the first time was in 2009 in novice second time was 2011 with all those critters in professional and then the leopard was in 2015 my first time entering in masters oh wow so your first time entering in masters you I think if I'm correct did you win large mammal right large life-size mammal yes they break it into different categories with the small to medium and then the large mammal yeah yeah i'm looking at the picture right now that was definitely a super cool cat pose and i don't like i know you know just as far as when you're altering and stuff lifting that arm up as high as it is holding on to that tree like that was i would imagine one thing in itself to not get that to like drum and make sure it was just the right length <laughs> oh yeah what a yeah. unique pose that is that leopard Yes. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about like creating that piece and like the journey to the world show that year? So you said that your first world show, you were like 15 years old or, or whatever, and you got a plane ticket. Like, how did you get to the world show that year? Was that the only piece you brought? I kind of have to back up a little bit to get okay. to that leopard. All right. Sorry. So I had the four leopards in 2011 at that world show. Then I took another leopard in collective artists to the national show that same year that was in South Dakota. And then I had an opportunity to go and work with the cat man himself, Phil Susie up in Montana. And while I was working up there, right around the end of 2014 and the spring of 2015 is when I transitioned to North Dakota and actually took another leopard to the North Dakota State Taxidermy Show and won my first best show with that leopard. And then the world show is only a few months away at that point. So I'd already, I mean, I had just taken two different leopards to two different state shows back to back. 
And I had that, I had that idea of doing a leopard on a tree like that for quite a long time. I, I actually had a real photo of a wild leopard in India hanging on the side of a tree, just like that. Oh, wow. And my problem was I couldn't convince any of our leopard clients to go for that pose because without actually seeing it done, it was hard for anybody to understand or imagine it in their mind. I kid you not, three weeks before the world show, one of our leopard clients at the time, I was working for Dakota Taxonomy in Bismarck, North Dakota. And we had this wonderful gentleman from down south, I want to say Louisiana. He killed this beautiful leopard and he had no idea what he wanted to do with it. I emailed him that photo and he immediately replied and was like, I love it. Do whatever you want. You've got an absolute green light on this cat. Mount it like it was your cat. Wow. That was, so that was a customer piece. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, that's even to this day, that's obviously the best thing any of us taxidermists can hear is when a client trusts you enough to say, just mount it however you want to mount it. You know, pretend it's your deer or your pheasant or your cat, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's that's nice to hear. But then it's also a little stressful to hear because you like you think <laughs> artistically and then some of these clients don't really they don't they see something that you think is really cool and maybe they won't like it. And it's just like really stressful to me. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's hard to see the vision sometimes like or translate the visions. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm I'm glad. So you did it like that. And of course, you you won the world title with it. But the biggest question was, was the guy happy? Oh, yeah. No, he <laughs> he called me after the show and personally thanked me. And it was it was a really special deal. I mean, because there is quite a level of trust when somebody tells you mount it however you want. You know, like you've got a green light on it. I never sent him any progress pictures along the way. I mean, it was he never saw it until after the world show. Oh, wow. So you know, it gives you a sense of confidence that people are willing to put that much trust in your artistic abilities. Yeah. So geez. you said it was only like a few weeks before the world show. Is that correct? Three weeks before the Three world weeks. show. And I knew You're I kidding. wasn't going to have time to order a mannequin. So we had that biggest standing Mackenzie leopard mannequin and it had leg rods in it. And I'm like, well, I guess I'll make this work. So I cut all the leg rods out of it and just chopped it into a million pieces and basically altered the body and then I um made my own jaw set of course for the for the master's division at the world show if you're going to do an open mouth you have to make all the artificial parts yourself which means you know the nose and the mouth and ear liners and things like that so that was absolutely the most challenging part for me because I'd never made a jaw set the one thing that really helped me and I mean I definitely was blessed to have another leopard project going on at the same time where the Cleveland Museum of Natural History, that's part of my early year story, I guess. I won't really go into that too much, but I was still doing a lot of work for them and they had sent me a frozen hole, a more leopard okay. from a zoo and I had the entire carcass. I was able to cast the inside of the mouth. So I got all that back of the mouth, the detail, the throat, the palate. And I was able to incorporate that into my hand sculpted jaw set for this world show leopard hanging on the tree. But it also gave me the entire leopard carcass for the 
anatomy of the shoulder, that extreme leg hanging up on the tree. Yeah. So that was a huge advantage. But yes, doing all of that, altering that leopard, creating that pose, building the tree, making the jaw set, and sculpting the head around that jaw set and getting it mounted and dry and finished in three weeks was absolute insanity. There were several times when I got to the shop and I didn't leave not one time for 48 hours. I didn't even stop to eat. I I literally was just so focused and obsessed. And I went home, I slept for seven hours, and I came back and did another 48 hours. You are a different breed. (laughs) I know for a fact that it took some years off my life. Yeah. So I'm really thankful that I won because I'd already decided before I even got to the show, I'm like, I'm never doing this ever again. Oh, yeah, that was totally worth it for sure. Yeah, my gosh, you would have gone through all that and then to not win, I just would have burned me out. That would have been it. But yeah, that is, that is, and like, what are the odds that you were going to have a customer literally tell you, do whatever you want. And then the fact that you got that stuff from the zoo, just like all kind of fell together. That was just meant to be. And I somehow managed to get that leopard mounted and took that to the same show. Also. <laughs> oh, you took that one to that same world show? Yeah. yeah. Plus two psychic gear that I went and hunted in mm-hmm. Iowa and ended up mounting with that and more leopard it was a chase scene yes i was gonna ask you about that one as i'm looking at that picture right now as well i was wondering where that one kind of came into the mix yeah so when you asked earlier what else i took to that that world show i had my snarling leopard on the tree i had my white tiger coming down the rocks and i had that a more leopard chasing the two life-size psychic deer and then we also had two African lions fighting that was a shop collective piece. And I also mounted a bobcat that I ended up leaving at the last minute and didn't bring to the show. Wow. That's wow. a lot. And you only had three weeks to prepare for your uh, main pose there. That's crazy. Yeah, it was pretty mad. Pretty madness. Yeah, that was definitely madness. That's a lot of work. Yeah, and there was a lot of people to thank along the way. I mean, obviously, like the collective staff and even just having that working environment, like my boss at the time, my coworkers, I mean, they put up with a lot because obviously I was like a crazy person, super focused on what I was doing and not really helping out anybody else. Happens. <laughs> yeah, that's something that like, I mean, you can only do at a certain time in your life, like, you know it has to be the perfect environment so if it's perfect go for it you know so hey you're absolutely right about that Uh, it's a unique situation and when you find yourself in that you gotta just go with it because exactly like you said you know that it's never gonna happen again right you got the motivation your life you know whatever it takes to you know it lined up perfectly in order to make it happen so man that's awesome it was pretty exciting and the funny thing is I genuinely didn't think I was gonna win like after I got that leopard to the show, I just started to really second guess everything. Like, here's an example. You know, I didn't even have time to put the whiskers in until I got to the show. Gluing whiskers in right before I wheel it into the competition room. When I just shined the flashlight in the mouth to make sure that I didn't get any dust in there while it was in the trailer right over, I noticed that part of my finishing technique on the inside of the mouth where I was building up layers and like fleshy depth of color using different kinds of like eyeliner and makeup and liquid crystal gloss that 
I had accidentally used some eyeliner that had like ripper sparkles in it. Oh no. So I shine the flashlight in its mouth and I'm like, well, the judges are going to love this cat until they look in its mouth. And then they're just going to laugh and be like, why is his mouth sparkly? <laughs> oh, you had like glitter eyeliner or something? Yeah. It was uh... really, yeah, it was, uh, but I was, I was pretty worried about that. And then everybody at the show kept telling me like, oh, you, you won this, you know, like hands down, there's nothing even close. And then when we get to the banquet, they announce, you know, third in world first and then second in world and then the best in world for each category. And when they got to my category, the large life-size mammals, you know, I'm on the edge of my seat. Like I can't sit still. I feel like I'm about to puke. Yeah. And they, <laughs> they open the envelope for third in the world and they say that they didn't have a third in world that year. And I was like, what? It's like, well, maybe, maybe I got second because I really was convinced I didn't get first. And yeah. the same thing, they opened the envelope for second place and they never had a second place winner. Mm. So I was like getting ready to get up and walk out of the room. So I was already leaving my chair to leave the room because I was so sick, you know, and then they accidentally put the photo on the screen like two seconds before they read the name. So I, I knew I'd won before they even announced my name. And, oh. and that was, that was a pretty crazy feeling. Yeah. That'd be a really big relief. <laughs> so there wasn't a third or second in the world that year, just cause nobody like scored over 90 or what happened there? I don't know exactly the reasoning, but in, in the past, there's been a lot of world shows where if they don't feel that any mount justifies or, or is good enough, they just won't. There's been years they haven't even given out a first in the world. You right. know, something just doesn't, you know, I don't know. I guess they the judges really felt that there wasn't even a second or third place runner up. I mean, and there were a lot of other leopards at that show and a lot of other life-size pieces in that category. So to me, I mean, I just felt like, wow, the judges must have really, really liked my piece. And you know how it is when you walk through a show, a lot of the mounts look really good, but unless you're the judge with the flashlight and you're actually probing it, you don't really know all the flaws on everybody else's piece. Yeah, very true. So I have to ask then too, did when you got your critique, if you did get your critique on that leopard, did you ask him, like, did he point out the sparkly mouth or they just never saw it i did you know i i brought that up and there were three things that Dwayne dewey was one of the judges and i remember getting a critique from him and i've always looked up to Dwayne dewey i mean he's always been an idol of mine because he had a very similar introduction to taxonomy where you know right out of the gate he was thrown into this super high volume production type situation where he was cranking out animals and he didn't even know what they were he had to have a picture book of african animals laid out in front of him so he could match horns with skins and mannequins wow and i had a very similar introduction into the world of taxonomy it, the commercial world of taxonomy where you know it's all about volume and getting it done him and i we've had some really good talks over the years but i've always looked up to him just for his you know standard of excellence in taxonomy Absolutely. and it was an honor to have him be one of the judges and I mentioned to him you know what he thought about the sparkles and he's like oh I didn't really he's like I kind of noticed them but 
the piece was so incredible when I walked up to it that, you know, like that just didn't even matter at that point. But he noticed a few other things. Like apparently when I was adding some of the different layers of color to the canine teeth, I had apparently gotten just the tiniest little speck of yellow paint on the edge of the black lip. And I never saw that. And he found that. Hmm. And he also kind of questioned whether a leopard could actually rotate its shoulder blades into such an extreme pose. And I was like, well, I mean, I've got photographic reference, which I didn't provide. I should have, you know, I should have had that picture printed out in a little envelope. And, yeah. you know, hanging hanging a, a leopard carcass on a tree like that to make sure it could actually do that, you know, is something else I should have taken a photo of and included in that envelope. Yeah, you know, you actually got pretty lucky with that because that could have been a, depending on the judge, they would have been like, nope, can't do that. That's just not like, you know, not even gonna put this in the running, like automatic, you know, red ribbon piece. So that really kind of was lucky that that didn't matter. oh no absolutely absolutely and that you know i found out years later that out of the three judges that judged that piece that Dwayne dewey liked it the least because of that extreme shoulder arm and he it almost didn't even win for that exact reason heather wow ashley barrett was one of the other judges from your state and Mm -hmm. i found out later that he was actually the one that was really pushing for it to be the winner because oh. he he understood the, the anatomy and that yes they absolutely can do that i mean cats are so extreme in their you know physical makeup the things they can do are just mind-boggling oh yeah, and wow. ashley really knows his cats too so i feel like he would know the the anatomy of what they're possible um you know limbs can do yeah and you know that was his one and only year ever judging the world show wow i honestly i never knew he even judged it so that is and what are the odds of that that like apparently i forget who all was involved but there were some people that wanted the tiger to win over the leopard your tiger the white tiger that i had in masters also yeah which didn't didn't place obviously i don't even remember what i got a score on it but it's one of those things where people either love it or they hate it because i was trying to be really artistic with the habitat and you know, had these floating rocks that were connected to the bottom of the tiger's feet. Yeah, I I think it's super cool. Yeah, but, you know, I don't know. I don't see it as weird. Like, that is the type of things we try to do in competitions or, you know, things people have never seen before. Just unique ideas, and I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. No, it it did win the uh, third place Akeley Award, you know, for artistic creativity. So, yeah, that was that was definitely special. But I... I do feel like I could have spent a lot more time on that cat. I kind of rushed a lot of the steps on the tiger. So I don't know. Yeah, it was it was really neat um, having the three judges. I want to say I got a critique from each one of the three judges, you know, because in Masters, they've got three different judges that then have to sort of come together and collaborate and come up with their average score. And it kind of helps with any kind of bias that there might be you know, from one judge really liking it or maybe having a guess as to who brought it. Yeah, no, I like that too. Like I know everybody has their gripes about the world show, but I really like the fact that there's three different people or I don't know if there's sometimes more or sometimes less, but it is nice because then you don't just have one person who's biased about something like you said. 
and it's their decision and that's final. Like at least they can all talk to each other and kind of weigh, like you said, Ashley knew that that, that animal could do that. If it was up to just Dwayne Dewey, who knows what would have happened? Yeah. Yeah. And it, the great thing about having three judges on one piece too, is that you get to learn so much more. I mean, like Dwayne Dewey pointed out some really great things, even with the overall like display and presentation, he said it really should have been a whole 12 inches higher on the tree, which I agree. The tree should have been taller. It would have had a more overwhelming presence when he walked up to it. And then one of the other judges, um, Manny Chavez, he actually pointed out somehow I missed it. And it's weird. Like you both are taxidermists, So I'm sure you understand this, but like you can, literally taxi the skin around perfectly have it everywhere that you want it to be smooth not a wrinkle or a fold anywhere and you try to watch it for the first couple of days and somehow every once in a while when it dries and shrinks and everything pulls into place you can get like a tiny little fold and he found like a little tiny fold on the back of the one front leg mm. and i just oh it just drove me nuts because i didn't know it was there you know but yeah. That skin has a mind of its own when it's drying sometimes. So totally understand that. Ugh. Yeah, it can be frustrating, but we do the best we can, right? If that was like your only flaws, like between that and you said you had a little paint on one of the lips, like I think, I mean, that's really not bad. Every mount has some kind of flaw. Like I don't think there's ever been, you know, a perfect mount, not in my experience anyway. So that's really not too bad. Of course, it, it always bugs you though. It's still going to be at the back of your mind. Like, ah, man, I should have fixed that. But it happens. And it's a really weird feeling. Even now, like people ask me, what's your favorite mount? Like, it's not always the one that pops into my mind as my favorite mount. But hands down, I, I, I've i tried to replicate it several times. I mean, I've probably mounted close to 20 leopards on that same post since then for other people. And I have never even come close to mounting anything as well as that one was mounted. Hmm. Well, that guess, one that you won with is that right yes yeah yeah i guess like i said it all just kind of fell into place for you between the customer getting that carcass from that museum like that one just was meant to be i think so i really do yeah and i thank god for that opportunity yeah some things i think they just are meant to be they fall into place for you know certain reasons so you talked about you've done you know a lot of leopards obviously do you know how many leopards that you've worked on like total Right now, I'm at 72 leopards. 72 leopards. That's a lot of leopards. And yes, I mean, I'm not, I don't want to count my chickens for the hatch, but I've got almost a dozen more lined up at the moment. And hopefully that just continues because that's my passion and that's what I really like. I mean, I love hunting them. I love talking to people that hunt them. And I mean, there's not that many that are killed each year and most people already have a good tax service picked out, but every it seems like every year I get a couple of new people that, that have just heard me and decided they want to send me their leopard. Yeah, you do. You have got a lot of people lined up. That is for sure. Because I mean, most people have never even seen that many leopards, let alone actually work on that many. So that is, I know one question I have actually about, and so I do not know my big cats that well. Like you, of course, know them in and out. So I might call these leopards, but I have a feeling that they're jaguars. But I wanted to ask you about the one picture you sent that is the two big cats in the scene with the macaws. 
and it says the Australian Association. Like, what was that from? So Gary Pegg is another great taxidermist, also a former world champion from Australia. I believe he won with some type of really exotic, rare, mm, I don't know my birds that well. Some kind of like, um, oh my God, on a blank, what are these birds called? They're a type of parrot from Australia, but they're not really a parrot. Anyway. Some kind of tropical bird or. Yeah. you know. Well, and those... even if you think of it after this episode, we can always put the picture in there and put it in. <laughs> and be like, this is what it was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry. Gary Pegg is a really great taxidermist, a wonderful human being, extremely um, generous. And we got to talking at the world show one year. I've met him several times there. I had just mentioned that, you know, all the big cats, the only ones I have yet to work on are jaguars. I mean, I have never, ever gotten to work on jaguars. I mean, I've had my hands on tons of them, but they either weren't mountable or the museum didn't want to mount it or whatever. And he's like, well, I got two of them in the freezer. And if you fly down here, you can mount them any way you want. And I was like, really? I was like, all right. So we made it happen and flew down to Australia and had just a wonderful time with him. I mean, I learned a lot from him on on mounting birds. And then we mounted those jaguars together. It was just so much fun. We did a bunch of hunting and hiking around. And it was was a neat experience. I mean, Australia is an incredible place. And then after... I flew home. He did the finish work and habitat on them and took them to the Australian taxidermy show and entered them collectively. So you competed at the Australian or he competed at the Australian taxidermy show. Is that right? Yeah. So he entered them um, collectively, even though I wasn't there. But, you know, my my name was one of the names on the piece. Is that a show that's like connected to the world shows? Is it um, like in the same network? I don't believe it is. It would kind of be like their their national show, you know, like okay. their version of the national show. And I don't even know how many taxidermy shows there are in Australia, if that's the only one they have in the whole country. How did that mount do at the show? I think it won first place. Sure Very cool. Did. And then, yeah, in the collective artists, obviously. Yes. Cool. So what are the differences between a jaguar and a leopard? Like, I, I see the spots are different. Is there anything else? The main differences are the the sheer size and proportions. You know, a big, big, big leopard, the biggest leopard I've ever heard of was 250 pounds, where the biggest jaguar I've ever heard of was 400 pounds. Oh, wow. So they get much, much larger. They, you know, obviously jaguars love the water. They're very aquatic, where leopards generally stay away from the water. Jaguars, man, their skulls and their heads are massive. I mean, they're, they're built more like a lioness with spots. Hmm. They're just incredibly powerful. They got a really stocky build. And when you look at the profile, you know, leopards, their back drops down away from their shoulder blades. And jaguars are the complete opposite. Like they literally have a muscular hump to their spine. You know, super deep chest, powerful back legs, short stocky tail are actually much better at climbing trees, which is part of why I wanted to do the one jaguar in that pose climbing up the tree because they do I mean I've seen videos of jaguars you know sneaking down a trail in the rainforest and running up a tree and grabbing a sloth or an anteater and then letting go of the tree and they're just using their own body weight to rip this critter off the branch wow yeah that's a good way to differentiate the two I think stocky is a good word 
jaguars to me just always seem so stocky where a leopard seems a little more lean i guess is that you think correct oh yes absolutely yeah leopards are very thin you know they're and i shouldn't say they're all like that i mean a big male leopard can get very stocky in the front end as well they get big powerful shoulders you know when they climb up and down trees a lot and i mean there's impressive videos of leopards killing a, a young zebra twice their body weight and running up a tree with it in their mouth oh, so just so powerful yeah pound for pound a jaguar is the strongest big cat in the world but i would say a leopard is definitely number two and then uh real quick they have different like rosettes too right like they have isn't it a jaguar has spots in the middle of their rosettes or is it the opposite yes yep you're absolutely right about that that is probably the biggest visual difference as well as the pattern where leopards have much much smaller rosettes and a lot more of them and typically it's very rare for a leopard to have any spots or markings inside of the rosette pattern whereas jaguars almost every one of their rosettes has multiple markings inside of it but each rosette is much larger. I mean, like the size of a softball, you know, the biggest leopard rosette isn't really much bigger than a golf ball. Huh, how interesting. I didn't know that, but I did know there was some differences. There is a picture that I, um, when Heather showed it to me, I was like, oh, is that an ocelot? <laughs> She's like, no, that's, I think it's some kind of leopard. It's the one that's on the cover of the breakthrough. Oh, yes. The clouded leopards. Yes. So it kind of looks like an ocelot. To me, I guess I thought I was better with my species identification. I need to brush up on that. So <laughs> that's a, it's a super pretty mouth though. And you said that's a clouded leopard? Yes. Yep. Clouded leopards. Yes. There's two subspecies. They're from like Borneo, Indonesia, that part of the world. They do look very similar to an ocelot, which is from South America. Similar size also, you know, they're, they're small, surprisingly small. They're the smallest of all the leopard species. And incredibly agile. One of the coolest things about clouded leopards is that their back feet are double jointed. So they can run straight up a tree and turn around and run straight down a tree, just like a squirrel. Wow. Oh, that's so cool. I'm going to have um, to look up a video of that now. <laughs> I know. Now I want to see what that looks like. That particular piece, the one I just mentioned, the clouded leopard, did you compete with that or did you do anything with that besides, you know, just have, have it mounted? Yes, that one I took to the world show and I entered in Masters of Masters, which is a really unique category where the only people that can enter in Master of Masters are either World Taxidermy Show judges or previous best in world winners. So, right, because I know you competed at this last world show in 2022. Uh, I think you had a cheetah. Is that right? Yes. Yep. Had the cheetah in Master of Masters. And the the other fun thing about Master of Masters is it's not actually judged like all the other mounts in the competition, but every competitor in the Masters division gets a vote. They basically just walk by them and they, whichever one strikes them the most, they have free choice of writing down that number. So it's, it's kind of like a popularity contest. The other fun thing about Master of Masters is that in order to enter in that category, you have to make everything yourself. So it's fun to enter animals that have to carve from scratch anyway. Okay. Okay. So, so that's kind of nice, I guess, in a way. You don't have to worry about putting, you know, accidentally sparkly makeup in the back of the mouth, you know, like yes. you yes. just have to. There's no flashlights. Or... Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of nice. And that clouded leopard. You can't really see it in the picture on the cover of Breakthrough because it sort of cuts off the tail. 
but that one was honestly to this day that's probably my favorite mount i've ever done just because believe it or not that's made out of three different clouded leopards i suspended it off the tip of the tail so it's laying on a limb but the leopard's actually supporting the limb and not the other way around yeah we have the picture of it like the full uh, articulation and so you're balancing it through the tail or like it's connected through the tail is that right yes pretty much pretty close to the tip of the tail it wasn't a super super solid connection obviously which was another reason i i chose to put it in master masters instead because it wasn't going to be touched and manhandled it's a little bit harder to judge something that's kind of flopping around one of the first things on the score sheet is secure attachment right so they might say yeah i don't know about this but it looks cool yeah yeah that's that was definitely a uh, a feat i know i had talked to you at that world show a little bit and i was very surprised to hear that that was a whole bunch of different pieces so like if it took three clouded leopards to make that, like, do you remember which pieces are, are what, you know, like, is the face one, is the tail another, like? Yeah, the, the reason it's made out of different clouded leopards, they all, they're all female clouded leopards that came from different zoos and ended up at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. What often happens with zoos, I mean, it, it's understandable when, when they die, if, if they're going to save it, it has to go through the necropsy process. They cut them up and they do a lot of research and different things. But part of that process involves essentially just storing it in a refrigerator for up to two weeks. Mm. So slippage becomes an issue by the time it ends up in a freezer and I get a hold of it. Thankfully, all three of them were a really good color match, but they all slipped in different areas. And there was a lot of damage that was related to the veterinarians, you know, that are working hard to save their lives when they become ill. You know, I believe one of them was actually killed by the male when they oh. were trying to breed them. And another one had some kind of sickness. So they shaved like part of the neck. Um, they shaved actually almost the entire throat on that cat, which is part of why in that pose, the, the chin's kind of pulled down. Okay, that makes sense. And then one of the legs was cut off and actually missing. I, I guess they used that for some sort of research. Hmm. And then um, the tail was completely slipped on the one. It's mostly one cat, but then it's a different tail and a different breath. Wow. That is that. So it's kind of, you know, just so modge podged kind of together because it wasn't just like one spot might have been bad you just had to piece them all together like use the best cat and then just use the other two as spare pieces yes yeah and and those the other two that were spare pieces were i mean almost entirely unusable in themselves so it was the best case scenario to end up with something and you know museum has it now i don't know if it's on display i think it might be in storage that's a shame that was it's kind of a shame for something like that to be in storage like sit that out somewhere oh i know i'm sure that you know when the, when the time is right and they need it for a special cat display i mean who knows i know they they were talking about redesigning a lot of the museum so it may end up on permanent display as well oh cool cool so um just because we're talking about world shows and cats and all this um i kind of wanted you to touch just a little bit on this super cool tiger that you did playing with the ball. So 
I kind of heard some of this story and I sort of told Ashley about it a little bit, but uh, can you tell everybody kind of how, what happened with that cat? Like you took that cat to the world show and you know, how did it place? And then like, what happened to it after the world show? That is a really special tiger. Um, that's actually one that my grandpa raised from a cub. He had it from basically an infant all the way up to passing away of old age at 28 years old, oh, which has wow. got to be some kind of record. He actually was completely blind near the end. His canines were completely busted off, but he would still get up and play with that ball every day. Oh. And one day he couldn't stand up anymore. You know, his back end just gave out. So that's when the vet came and, and had to put him down, unfortunately. But because the vet put him down, it was a very fresh deal. And I was able to convince my grandpa to, I wasn't even around. I was on the other side of the country at the time, but he was able to freeze him whole for me. And then later I got him skinned and tanned and I didn't really know what I wanted to do with it for a long time, but I actually took that one to the national show. Oh, okay. I forget what year that was. It was real close to home here. It was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. So I, I had that idea, but this is literally a perfect specimen. I mean, there's no slips anywhere on it. I kind of thought it was a waste to mount such a perfect specimen laying on the floor like that, but I wanted to do it just for the challenge. You know, I carved the whole thing from scratch and it was a lot of fun to mount it that way. Part of the problem, as a lot of taxidermists will understand, you know, taxidermy dries differently depending on the time of the year. You know, in the wintertime, in a dry climate, it's wonderful. Things are dry within a week. I mounted that about a month before the national show and, and it was incredibly humid that summer. I mean, unbelievably humid. We had to actually rent an industrial dehumidifier that we had in the shop and we closed off a special room and we were putting all kinds of stuff in there just to get it dry enough to finish because we'd mount it and hang it on the wall and a month later, it's still too wet to do any oh, finish work. Wow, geez. It was and where was this at? Humid. Like what state? North and South Dakota. Oh, okay. So in the Dakotas. Yeah. Okay. So I get it dry, right? Well, then I didn't have an enclosed trailer and I had to put it in the back of my pickup truck with a hopper and I'm driving down to the show. And I bet you, I drove through three hours of some of the densest fog I've ever driven through. And I knew it. I was telling myself the whole way down there. I'm like, I've got a dry sponge sitting in the back of this truck and it oh, is yeah. literally pulling moisture out of the air right now. Mm. And so that was unfortunate. And it happened to a lot of the competitors, you know, people got to the show. And then another one of my frustrations was we get to the taxidermy show, the competition room, and they've got a set of double doors on both ends of the room. And all four doors are wide open. And people are, you know, going in and out carrying mounts in there's like, sweat pouring off of everybody's face, like we're all soaked to the bone from the humidity. It was unbelievably humid. Then the next day here, the judge is like disqualifying all these different mounts and saying, yeah, this is wet. This is wet. This is wet. And whatever, you know, judges can have their own opinions, but I definitely disagreed with them. I don't know if it was a, sometimes there are some politics in taxidermy. I, I never met the judge before, but one thing that bothered me is he was in the room when we were carrying our mounts in. And as a taxidermy judge myself, that's a big no, no. If you're going to be judging a show, 
You need to stay in your hotel room. You need to be far away from the competition arena. You do not need to know who's bringing what into the room. So yeah. for whatever reason, whether it was because he knew whose tiger it was or because he thought it was wet, I have no idea. But I got the lowest score that I've ever gotten on any animal in my entire life. And I was very upset about it. But, you know, I went and stood in line and got my critique. Basically, the only thing he told me is that he found a soft spot in the belly and he practically kneeled on it with his entire body weight. And I'm like, hold on, you know, I carved this whole thing. It's not like super dense foam. Yeah. You don't need to be like intentionally trying to squish it. Yeah. Harassing it or whatever. Yeah. Pulling up a reference of a completely different species of tiger and saying that the brow structure didn't match. And I'm like, okay, well, you obviously don't know your tigers like you think you do, but whatever. I didn't get anything. The only thing I won with that was people's choice and taxidermist's choice. The only two awards the judges didn't have control over, which I thought was somewhat ironic. Right. And I just, it, it really left a sour taste in my mouth. And I was like, you know, this is just, this is just ridiculous, but whatever. And I took it home and the very next day I totally sprayed it down with a garden hose and ripped it apart and put it back in the freezer. You took it all <laughs> apart? Yeah. Yeah. So it'll be at another show someday in a different pose. Oh, so oh, you, you didn't remount it yet. You just have it. Yeah. Okay. Wow, yeah. you're kidding. Because I've seen this mount like floating around quite a bit or like it's in breakthroughs. It's on, you know, online anywhere. If you search on like a tiger mount, this mount comes up to know that it's like no longer in existence. That's kind of crazy. Yeah, it was around for just over a month. Wow. And then uh, you said that ball, was that his exact ball? Like the real one? Yeah. Yeah. It's a, oh. all those claw marks in there ripped up from tiger claws that's really special at least you got some really good pictures and it like it kind of lives you know through pictures and lives through the breakthrough and people share it still so it kind of lives on through that but then of course you said it's going to come around again one day that skin so that's cool yeah yeah and I've been really really blessed and fortunate I mean tigers are one of my favorite animals to work on I've mounted 12 of them now two of them were a big thanks to Heather Oh, yeah. No, we're we're the ones that owe you the big thanks. <laughs> Those two recently? Yeah, yeah. The white one and the um, the normal colored like Bengal tiger. Yeah, Daniel was, you know, it was great to just learn different things. Like the one thing I learned from Daniel during those tigers was the whole like a lot of sculptors put in briskets in their cats. And he said that, I mean, I might be wrong. I might be misremembering Daniel, but you said that like cats do not have briskets. They have like this sort of X pattern going on. So like that was nice to learn. Uh, things like that was just neat to kind of watch. It's fun to watch him alter stuff too. I mean, he makes it look so easy. <laughs> then you go to alter. Like we have a sable and a leopard to alter this coming week and a bush buck. And like I'm dreading it. But then <laughs> I'm so inspired after Daniel leaves and I start hacking stuff apart. And I'm like, oh. He makes this look so much easier than it is. Uh, yeah, well, I'm glad I got to show you some of my different tricks and tips. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very thankful for it. But um, so we talked about leopards and talked about big cats and talked about competing. And um, one part that we're trying to keep in this uh, podcast of ours is, you know, some hunting stories that kind of go along with the taxidermy side of things, because you know, we of course enjoy taxidermy and learning about these animals, but one of the other great passions for most people in this trade is hunting. 
And you are no exception to that. You've hunted all over the world and you've harvested some like really amazing trophies. Uh, but to stay on the topic of you and leopards, can you share your story about the journey to harvest your own leopard? Oh, yes. Yeah, this is a bittersweet story. <laughs> you know, okay. So for people that don't understand, the average leopard hunt is definitely a game of patience because hands down, it's the most difficult and most unpredictable animal to hunt in Africa. Typically, when you book a leopard hunt, you want to plan it for at least two weeks. So you're going to spend about, you know, 14, 15 days. And really, there's so many factors and variables. I mean, even the moon cycle comes into play. Like, you don't want to book your hunt over the full moon period because that really messes things up. And it requires, I mean, there's two different ways to hunt leopards. For the most part, you know, 90% of leopards are hunted over bait. And depending on what country you are and whether you're in a private land or wilderness area, there's rules as to whether you're allowed to hunt them at night over bait with a spotlight or if you have to get them on bait during daylight hours. You know, I, I had known quite a few people that had gone and hunted leopards before I ever went to Africa. So I knew it was possible. I did a lot of research. I got information and I felt like I went with some really, really qualified people. And it's definitely not cheap. So I saved up money for a long time and I made payments and I would wire the money over there. And I ended up going to Zimbabwe by myself when I was 18 years old for my first leopard hunt. Oh, wow. And I was so excited. You know, I, I figured it was almost a guaranteed thing. Well, quickly came to realize that there's definitely no guarantee when it comes to leopard hunting and went an entire two weeks without even seeing a leopard. Oh, man. I had a wonderful time and I definitely got the African bug in me because I immediately wanted to go back. And then I did. I actually went back later the same year and I asked my guide who he actually felt really bad because up until that time, he was 100% on leopards, at least on opportunities. You know, if you miss the leopard, well, that's pretty much your own fault and your hunt is over. But he invited me to come back at the end of the season. And I asked him, I said, how long can I come? You know, like, how long do you think it would take? You can come as long as you want. So I booked a trip for two months. Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> That's one of the great things about being young and not really having any responsibilities at that time. True. I, <laughs> I went over and I had an absolute blast. I mean, still didn't get a leopard. But oh, my gosh. I had so many unbelievable things happen i mean between getting to be a big part in eliminating a man-eating crocodile and getting chased by rogue elephants and discovering entirely new areas that he had never even explored on this basically concession that he had been renting from the government it, it was very very interesting also somewhat costly so by the time i could afford to go back again it was several years later and I went, um, ended up going to a different part of Zimbabwe with a different outfitter on the western side along the border of Botswana. And that part of Zimbabwe is beautiful. It's Matopo Hills. It's these incredible granite boulders that are, you know, ranged in size from a large pickup truck to a small house. And wow. they're balanced on each other, sticking up out of the jungle. I mean, it looks like if the wind blows hard enough, they're going to come toppling down. Really an incredible place. Very, very thick with leopards. And the leopards there are 
actually a somewhat different subspecies. They actually are built more like a jaguar. They're oh, it's cool. shorter, stockier, thicker, bigger heads tend to even be a little bit heavier at times. But long story short, booked another two-week hunt there in the Matopos, hunted all two weeks down to the last day. And I'm like, huh, I don't think this is going to happen. So my guide was generous enough to let me stay another week, which costs also a lot of money. So I extended my trip to three weeks and ended up getting my leopard on the very last day of the third week on my third attempt. But that was like a total of, you know, almost three months of leopard hunting. Wow. What is, why are they so unpredictable like that? Leopards are incredibly intelligent. I mean, unbelievably intelligent. Basically, what you're trying to do is outsmart them by hanging bait, whether it's an impala or the leg of a zebra. You find a promising looking place where a little stream intersects a road and maybe like a natural ridge or a valley. You look for areas that are somewhat easy to walk. You know, cats are lazy creatures by nature, so they like to walk anywhere that's somewhat easy to access also you know the edge of a river stream or the edge of a road where the sticks and leaves are somewhat naturally cleared away gives them a quiet place to sneak along so you look for places like that you hang bait but you've got to hang it in a place where if a leopard then comes and starts feeding on it you've got to be able to find a place to build a blind that's you know about 100 yards away where you can still play the wind correctly and have a shot at this thing when it's in the, in the tree on the branch, you know, you got to plan that out for each location. I mean, at one time we had like 22 different bait locations. So it's incredibly exhausting because you're just burning up diesel fuel and driving as fast as you can from sunup till sundown, just checking dates. And it's fun because, you know, when you're cruising around like that, you inevitably bump into other great, trophy animals so I got really lucky on some other phenomenal animals I mean I got a bush pig in broad daylight between checking baits that's in like the top 10 record books wow Jeez. I mean just silly stuff like that you know and then you meet other people that I mean they've hunted four or five times trying to get a bush so yeah. you're you got to check all these leopard baits we had cameras on some of them which definitely makes it easier I mean you look for tracks at the bottom of the tree and there was no shortage of leopard by any means but the majority of what was on our baits were females with cubs, mm. which is really great to see. You know, that's part of the conservation effort. There's lots and lots of leopards in the area. But when you have a big male climb into a tree and start eating some, you know, meat that you place there, in his mind, he thinks another leopard put it there. They're very cautious when they come into the bait. You know, they don't want to get in a fight that they can avoid if it's their territory sometimes it makes them somewhat suspicious as to why another leopard may have been hunting and maybe they think it was a female that killed it and put it in the tree what happens is you get these really smart leopards that have figured out over time that hey if there's meat in a tree and i didn't put it there i better not go there two nights in a row because in the past i've been shot at Mm. or something weird happened Leopard hunting is like a roller coaster of emotions. You're driving around day after day. Finally, you get a hit and you're like, oh my gosh, there's a giant leopard on this bait. It just fed last night. It was here for three hours. It ate, you know, 20 pounds of meat. This is awesome. 
We're going to race back to camp, grab all the gear, come straight back here, build a blind, sit here all night. And he doesn't show up that night while you're there. And then you leave and you're all discouraged. And then he comes the next night when you're not there. Oh, man. So, I mean, some of the tricks that some of the really good leopard hunters actually use, they'll put out two or three baits in an area where they know the cat is at. And if he hits on bait number one, they'll sit on bait number two that night. And sometimes they get him because Hmm. they know for sure he's not going to go back to bait number one. So it's either going to be bait number two or bait number three. And it's kind of an toss up and you just have to guess. But one of the greatest leopard hunters told me that leopards are predictably unpredictable. I mean, think of a cat, you know, they're walking down the road and they see a butterfly. They will turn around and chase that butterfly. I mean, the smallest little thing can, can alter their course. Yeah. So even though they've got like a somewhat predictable path, you know, typically a male leopard takes about two weeks to, you know, circumvent his territory. If he's making a general like surveillance loop of his perimeter, you know, making sure other males aren't coming in, kind of keeping tabs on where the females are. And this obviously varies depending on what the leopard density is in an area, but typically there's around five females living within one male's territory. Okay. Any one of those females can distract him, whether all of a sudden, you know, she wants to get romantic or she made a kill and he bumps into her and is like, oh, I'll share this snack with you. You know, there are so, so many variables. Or if he made a kill himself, that's going to hold him up. Yeah. yeah it's, it's unbelievably challenging. One of the most frustrating and yet rewarding hunts that anybody can ever do. Huh. Yeah. I guess, you know, it's one of those things that everybody, most, well, I should say most people would love to go on a leopard hunt, but I know the average leopard hunt is not typically affordable for most people. <laughs> yeah. They surprisingly, they've actually kind of come down in price for some oh, really? reason. Like I just the other day, I heard that you can do a leopard hunt for around $12,000. Oh, the last price I had heard was like 30. So that's definitely cheaper. I thought they were more, like I said, like around 30,000, 20,000. 30 is the average. And depending on where you go, I mean, there's places you can spend 70 or 80. Wow. Different areas, different, you know, different combinations. There's places you can go and do, you know, eight buffalo and hippo with a leopard and there's all different kinds of I mean there's several different countries you can hunt them in that's the one great thing about leopards is that they are almost like coyotes you can try to eliminate them and they're not gonna diminish in numbers I mean they they are the ultimate survivors I mean they can live in downtown Johannesburg you know sleeping on people's roofs and eating out of dumpsters at night they are just incredibly adapted to any condition and and that's why they're found in a wider area of the world than any other big cat i did not know that that they were so adaptable like to different climates and different environments because they're found like all over africa right and then i think you even mentioned like an indian leopard is that right yes they're all over africa the middle east india you know most of asia has leopards I mean, it's incredible. They're just all over the place. Hmm. So um, this isn't on the leopard topic, but I think you said 
uh, that when you were over there hunting leopards, one of your favorite hunts that you did, and the story still sticks with me because I just think it's, I would never do it, but I also get an adrenaline rush just thinking about it, um, was your hyena hunt. Um, can you just share that? Like you said, hyenas are really difficult to hunt. They're very smart and how you ended up getting a hyena. Can you just kind of throw that one in there? Cause I think that is just the coolest story. <laughs> sure. Sure. Actually, yes. Hyenas are arguably even harder to hunt than a leopard, but oftentimes you can come across a whole pack of them in the daylight. So, you know, obviously they're not that difficult in that scenario. I had the unique opportunity of hunting hyenas with one of the best leopard hunters. And he had actually previously been a government nuisance hyena hunter. So he had a lot of experience and he'd worked with different scientific research teams that were trying to learn and study and more fully understand hyena behavior. And it's absolutely incredible. I mean, the things he's telling me, like, were almost hard to believe. The way hyenas can communicate the way that they will plan a hunt you know they they basically get together and have a pack meeting of sorts somehow i mean researchers still don't really understand how but they basically decide what they're going to go after before they even branch out into different groups and go hunting and if they decide that they're going to go after a zebra these hyena groups will basically run right past other animals until they find a zebra Oh, wow. It's very strange. I, it's, there's so many things about hyena behavior, even their anatomy and social structure, that's just really remarkable. But they are very, very intelligent. We were in an area that had way too many hyenas. I mean, they had given out over 300 hyena permits because they were trying to reduce the number of hyenas. They're incredibly difficult. I mean, they're smart. You know, they just like a leopard, you can bait them. If you're sitting in a blind 100 yards away, a hyena or a leopard bait, you've got to make sure that you're absolutely quiet, that they don't hear you and they don't smell you because it's not like they just walk right down the trail and go straight to the bait. They'll come in about 200 yards and they'll lay down and they'll lay down and just listen and smell for an hour or sometimes two hours. Then they'll come in to 100 yards and do it again and just lay down and wait and listen, test the wind. And lions and leopards and hyenas will actually sometimes even do, you know, a circular perimeter mm -hmm. check and like walk all the way around and re I mean, take hours to come into the bait itself. So everything's really got to work out to get one on bait. And with trapping, trapping has become incredibly difficult because their nose, their sense of smell is so much greater than, than a leopard. You know, they can actually smell a steel trap under the dirt Jeez. and it's even gotten to the point where certain government officials and ranchers and you know in a in a really desperate attempt to eliminate their numbers have actually been poisoning carcasses that they find where hyenas are feeding and the hyenas can actually sniff out the areas that have been poisoned and won't even eat that man oh, they're just so smart that they can detect anything you try to throw them so it's actually gotten to where there's like a bounty, like a really high bounty in a lot of places on hyenas. The guide that I hunted with told me that there was this one particular hyena called Clubfoot. She had lost her foot in a trap and was like this really old leader of a clan. And it was a huge problem because, you know, hyena, an adult mature hyena can be 350 pounds. 
and a hyena that big can run right up to a cow standing in a pasture and literally bite through its leg in one bite and immobilize it and then just rip it apart. I mean, it, it, they're unbelievably powerful predators, so they can do a lot of damage and kind of like a mink getting into a chicken coop and going crazy and killing all the chickens, a hyena can get into a pen of goats and sheep and kill every single one in one night because mm. it's too easy for them. So aren't they um I want to interject real quick. Aren't they like closer related to cats than they are like dogs also? Isn't there something like in their um what do you call it taxonomy that's kind of interesting too? I'm not sure if there is some sort of a debate on what they're most closely related to. I've heard they're more closely related to black bears. Yeah. I I really don't know. I mean to I me they do kind of remind me almost of like almost like a giant weasel i mean i was like, gonna say wolverine does that yeah, kinda... like a civet crust of the wolverine and and a grizzly bear all mixed together i mean they really are an amazing animal but they don't seem to be anything like a dog you know they're not really in the canine family like everybody kind of thinks they are yeah everyone wants to think they're like dog-like but they really aren't you know even sounds like their behavior isn't very dog-like either besides maybe the pack mentality but everything else doesn't seem very doggish yeah it's it's one of those unique animals for sure they yeah they're fascinating so anyway long story short the way we hunted them i took one of my coyote predator collars and i flew over there with it and my guide's cousin owned a slaughterhouse so we would go there like every morning and get a like four or five gallons of blood and we'd basically just drive around, find an area that somewhat looked promising. And we would do this at midnight, right? So at midnight, we're going out into the into the wilderness, get on a trail. We'd walk, you know, walk until we kind of found somewhat of a clearing in the forest. And I'd put the call out in front of us, usually like hanging on a branch. And then we would take this cattle blood and dump it in a circle all the way around us. And then we would just sit there side by side. And my guide had the spotlight and I had the rifle and the remote in my hand. So I'm like going through the sounds. And a calf in distress worked really well. But the sound that actually got the most response was a white-tailed buck in distress. Like I'd never even heard that sound before. It was just on my pre-programmed collar. Oh my gosh. That is an eerie, eerie sound to blast through the jungle at mm-hmm. one in the morning. In the dark with blood. You're in a, the <laughs> middle of a blood circle. <laughs> and that's a so white tail distress call? Is that what you said? A white tail buck in distress. And you're in Africa. Yeah. But it's a horrible... I mean, it could be any antelope buck in distress. I mean, it's just like... You can tell it's a mature animal of some kind that is like screaming bloody murder. I mean, oh. it's, it's horrible. I mean, just thinking about it still gives me goosebumps. But oh, it works okay. really well because... The very first night we we did it, I mean, it was not even five minutes. And you can hear these hyenas start whooping and calling. And they're like three miles out. And like a couple minutes later, they're two miles out. And a couple, you know, a few minutes later, like you can hear them closing the distance quickly. Did you hear them sudden, laughing? Oh, yes, they do. They're, they're laughing. They're whooping. Oh, they're whistling. They've got these weird little grunts and squeals they've got a wide range of vocals and it's like they they're getting themselves more amped up the closer they're getting and you to just to like visualize this you are in the pitch black right like you don't have any lights on you're in just the middle of like the jungle in the dark pitch black sitting on the ground 
Oh, that's terrifying. That's like, so, it's menacing. All of a sudden, you know, they break through and they're into the clearing. And like, there's not enough moonlight to really see anything. But you can almost convince yourself that you can see them running around you because you can hear them. Like, they're they're crunching through the leaves and breaking little twigs. I mean, they're running in a circle around you. Like, now they've reached the blood and they're really amped up. And they're trying to find where the blood leads, but it's in a circle. So it doesn't actually lead anywhere. So they're just kind of running around you in this frenzy. And, you know, my guide kind of like taps me on the shoulder and he's like, are you ready? And I'm like, I guess, you know, and he turns the spotlight on and there's a hyena like 10 yards in front of me, just staring into me, you know, and I got mm. lucky that he was like in the scope when the light came on and I shot him and dropped him because you literally have 1.3 seconds to make it happen because, you know, once the light comes on, they're like cockroaches and they just scatter back into the brush. Oh, gosh. That is crazy. Like, yeah. what an adrenaline rush that must have been, oh, too. Of all the hunting I've done around the world, by far, there is nothing more adrenalizing than hunting hyenas in the dark on the ground and calling them into your lap like that. I mean, the, the great thing about hyenas is that a pack of them as scary and intimidating as they are they're not going to pounce on you in the dark like that. just they, they have enough of a fear of man that they won't do that but there were times where we were in that exact same scenario came in made our setup had the blood the call everything and immediately heard lions getting closer and they're doing their grunting and their roaring and their chuffing and and it's like yep that's when you jump up, grab the call, and run to the truck as fast as you can <laughs> because lions will jump on you and kill you if you're sitting on the ground in the dark surrounded by blood. Like, Oh, yeah. That's no joke. Yeah, so not only are you, like, calling, you know, this this crazy ravenous animal into you and then the potential for having many other types of carnivores come at you is very high, too, and ones that will actually come at you. That's crazy. What a scary adventure that must have been. But you obviously were successful, right? So Yeah, yeah, I was... managed. I only managed to get two of them. If I had been quicker, I should have gotten like 10 of them because wow. we we had multiple chances and encounters. There was one spot where I remember we called not too far from the road. We kind of just pulled the vehicle off into this tall grass. We We were in an area where we just couldn't find a clearing. So we actually stayed in the back of the pickup because the grass was too tall and we just shut everything off we waited like 20 minutes in the darkness and then we started calling and same thing it was you know clearly we were close enough where they could hear us it wasn't that many minutes before here they come and they're just running and they're literally tripping over each other bumping into each other as they're running in towards the sound of the call and there was enough moonlight that night like i could see the grass moving and I kid you not, several of the hyenas ran right into the side of the vehicle because we were parked in the grass. Oh, wow. It, it's almost like they're somewhat situationally clumsy. I don't know. It, it was really surprising to me. But they were bouncing off the vehicle. And I was like, man, if I could just see a tiny bit better and had a shotgun with buckshot, like, this would be perfect. But I ended up oh, not yeah. getting any of them that night. Yeah, you could once they, just once they got back close to the vehicle, they realized like, uh oh, we need mm. to turn around and leave. So they're we really not very graceful. <laughs> no, no, they're not graceful at all. Mm. 
Man. But they're intimidating. I mean, it's like a pack of black bears running at you, you know? That is true. Yeah, they are some of the gnarliest looking creatures. And then, you know, they have a gnarly reputation too. So, man, it's crazy to imagine just calling those into you. The biggest one I got was over 200 pounds. Wow. That really surprised me. I mean, I, I never knew that they even got that big. And they told me they've weighed them on a scale at 350 pounds. Wow. Wow. That is insane. That is yeah, just, that's a big animal. That is. The man. first one was a really crazy story. We had just gotten to camp. I was somewhat delayed with luggage and there were some road issues. So it was like 1030 by the time we roll into this camp. I literally threw my bags in the guest room and we were headed to the dining room to have steak dinner. And we just sit down at the table and one of the trackers comes running in. And he's like chattering away to my guide, telling him that, a hyena just ran through camp over by the skinning shed. And we both just look at each other like, there's no way. I mean, we came here to hunt hyenas. I've been here 15 minutes. There's no way there's a hyena right here in camp. Like, it can't be that easy. And he insisted. So we grabbed our gear and we run out there. And sure enough, there's tracks like all around, like on the edge of camp, around the skinning shed. They'd gone through his little garden behind the skinning shed and then ran down the road into the wilderness. So we spread some of this blood out down the road. And then we went and basically just leaned against the outside of the skinning shed that had this one single little light bulb. And I hung the collar up kind of near the end of the road where the, where the trees started on the edge of camp. And we're all just kind of like hunkered down, sort of hiding behind this tree right next to the edge of the skinning shed. And we start calling and we're all looking, you know, basically in the direction away from the center of camp towards the road, towards the blood, towards the collar, thinking that that's where he's going to come. And I hear a twig snap behind me and I slowly look over my shoulder and there's a hyena like sneaking along probably 20 yards behind me. It didn't see us. It was so focused on the collar. And I just slowly like waited and waited and waited. And it was a young one, you know, it was probably like a yearling, maybe a year and a half old. So it was a little bit inexperienced and had wandered too close to human habitation. And sure enough, I mean, he just slowly came along. And once he was kind of in front of me, you know, he was totally focused on the call, probably shot him at 30 yards and dropped him. And I just could not believe that it could be that easy. <laughs> Turns out it's not that easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was so that was a single hyena by itself. itself. Yeah. Wow. That is crazy. And then 15 minutes after you get there, you get signs of hyena. Sometimes things just work out very nicely. That's when you know they're not joking about having a really high population of hyenas. True. When you might just stumble upon one and uh man, hunts over. Yeah, it's it's pretty exciting. And another thing we did, I forgot to mention. They had an elephant die in one of the national parks nearby, just old age or whatever. So the park rangers had orchestrated, you know, cutting up the meat and distributing it to the local villagers. And they knew we were hunting hyenas. So they brought us the leg bones. They brought us these mm-hmm. elephant femur bones. I mean, these are like small railroad ties. There's no meat left on them. You know, they've been freshly cleaned to meat, but, you know, they're still bloody and raw. And we chained these to a tree. And that was our hyena bait because they're the only animal that can come and chew through those to get to the bone marrow inside. And they, they ate right through them. It was unbelievable. 
Hmm. Oh, so because of their like jaw structure and all that, like they can actually chew through an elephant bone. Yeah, I was really surprised by that. That's crazy. That must have been cool to experience like using an elephant bone too. Because like you said, I'm sure they're like tree trunks. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> pretty amazing how big they can get. Hey, and so how many hyenas have you taxidermied? I assume you taxidermied those few that you've hunted. I haven't even done my own yet. No, you know, I I haven't actually done that many. Of them. I, I have to go back and count. I've done all three subspecies i mean i've done the striped hyena spotted hyena and the brown hyena probably not more than a dozen of them i would say are they similar to taxidermy as like cats and stuff i know we talked about a little, like a little bit about their makeup but are they more like mounting a bear like a i guess a wolverine something like that <sighs> they remind me a lot of like the body is like mounting a wolf and then when you get to the neck and the head it's like a black bear mm-hmm. yeah i could see that they kind of look like that too anyway. Yeah, they're really kind of oddly proportioned. Yeah, I feel like they're a really hard animal to make look pretty. <laughs> that too. They're, they're not the most glamorous looking animal no. to begin with. No. Not like a cat. Like cats, they just look pretty, you know, being there. Well, of course, you can mess up a cat pretty easily too. But, yeah, you know. True. <laughs> One thing that's kind of interesting about hyenas, I mean, just from a taxonomy aspect, is, you know, when you work on kudu, for whatever reason, the kudu antelope is really susceptible to epidermis loss. Mm. Hyenas are that way. I don't know why they're so similar in that aspect, but you send a hyena and a kudu to the tannery, they're not going to lose hair, but they're going to lose their epidermis. So they look awful going through the mounting process until you get to the finish department. And that's when you basically have to paint the entire skin surface through and under the hair to get the color back. So that's similar to bears because bears are, you know, prone to losing, you know, epidermis in their face, like epidermis slippage and whatnot, at least kind of in my experience too. So that's similar to bears. And then being from Africa, maybe that contributes to their hair loss, you know, symptom. I don't know. That's interesting though. Yeah. I mean, I haven't really figured out why or what necessarily causes it. It just seems like I'm never surprised when a kudu or a hyena looks like that that's incredibly common and there's like you said black bears are an, another animal that do that but i can't really think of anything else i mean even warthogs don't do that i mean really cape buffalo sometimes yes yeah, a cape buffalo on their shoulders and stuff seem to kind of take a lot of painting that's true yeah maybe something with the african hides like you said ashley i mean they don't have thick hair and neither kudu or hyenas or cape buffalo have thick hair so i don't know if it has something to do with that who knows and then black bears around their eyes it's so thin who knows i mean it's it's gotta be part of the skin structure because i mean it just they're that fragile i mean i shot a kudu perfect heart shot he falls down on some really dry like sun-baked dirt and kicked like three times and then he was still and when we rolled him over he'd rubbed all the epidermis right off of where his ribs were i mean it was a perfect imprint of where his ribs had been rubbing against the dirt wow so that quickly their epidermis is incredibly fragile from the very get-go and hyenas and bears must be that way too i mean if you can that before it's even dead it's coming off really weird it seems that way sometimes yeah with at least bears and oh you've worked on enough like hyenas to know like if it's a common issue it must be common like species wide how interesting though like what would cause that 
one of the great mysteries. <laughs> yeah, we can speculate all day long. <laughs> yeah, pretty interesting. Well, I think that about wraps up our time for this episode, but we would like to let our listeners know that if they have a big cat, preferably leopards, that they would like to have done by Daniel, they can contact him through his business at Full Snarl Studios located in South Dakota. And is there anything you'd like to add before we wrap things up, Daniel? No, I, I've really enjoyed our conversation and appreciate the uh, the topic of leopards. I know I can get a little carried away talking about them. So oh, no, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> I learned yeah. so much about leopards that I would have never guessed and, and big cats in general. So that's so awesome. Thank you for sharing all your information with us. Yes. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's always exciting to talk to you and hear some of your neat stories from around the world and all your different projects. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in and listening to our new podcast, The Wild Verse. Uh, we hope you enjoyed learning about some big cat knowledge and some pretty cool stories. If you would like to stay up to date on the new episode releases, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, The Wild Verse, to see when new videos come out. You can also show us some love by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts.